0: Way City Church, located in Woodbridge, Virginia, is led by Pastor Marlon Yearwood, and exists to reach the lost and disciple the believer. Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we enter into your presence right now uh, in this place, uh, in this time. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are alive. We thank you that you are with us. We thank you that you are with your people. And Lord, we know that when you grieve, Lord, we grieve. And Lord, I believe that you are grieving right now over some of the things that are taking place in our nation right now. But Father, I thank you for the church. Father, I thank you, Lord, that um, we don't grieve in the same way that the world grieves. But we thank you, Lord, that we have a hope. Father, we pray and we seek justice, Father, on earth. Um, In the midst of the world, that's what we fight for. That's what we speak up for. That's what we seek. And and Lord, sometimes we see it uh, and sometimes we don't. But we know, Lord, that when it's all said and done, no one ever gets away with anything. Because everyone will stand before the the judgment seat of God. Everyone will stand, stand before you and they will be judged, both the righteous and the unrighteous. Father, I thank you that our hope is in you as the body of Christ, and as the church. And Father, we look to you, we look to the resurrection. And Father, we thank you that you are with us in this time. We thank you that you are comforting men and women all over this country. And Lord, I thank you for our time today as we, um, as we get away from the world, and as we look to you, and as we look to your word. Father, even today, as we uh, speak about justice, Father, I pray that the minds, I pray that the hearts, I pray that the eyes and the ears of men and women at the Way City Church and others who will listen to this message, that they would incline their ear to hear what your spirit is saying to them. Father, I pray that you would break down rock hard stony hearts and give them hearts the flesh. Father, I pray for empathy. I pray for sympathy. I pray for compassion. I pray for love. Father, I pray that we would bear each other's burdens. I pray that we would listen to each other, that we would seek to understand before we seek to be understood. Father, I pray for this time right now. I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would minister to us. And I pray, Lord, that at least at the see Church that there would be unity. In Jesus' name, we love you and we pray. Amen. Can you say racism exists in America? Can you say that? Can you say today out loud, right where you are? Can you say racism exists in America? Can you say that? And if you cannot say that, or if you struggle to say that, then you are a part of the problem. Because you refuse to see and you refuse to hear. If you struggle to say that or, or if those words make you extremely uncomfortable and you have a hard time saying those words, confessing them to be true, then you are part of the problem. Again, because you refuse to see and you refuse to hear. That video that I just showed you was a, a visual representative. It, it, it was a, a, a visual... It, it shows us what, what has been happening throughout all uh, biblical history, that this has been an issue since, since the beginning of time, throughout every nation and, and group of people. This has always happened, so I want you to see visually Um, what has been taking place and what is still taking place. Racism, prejudice, discrimination, abuse of power, bondage, uh, knees on the necks of people has always existed throughout biblical history. And it has always been fought. I'm going to say that again, racism, prejudice, discrimination, abuse of power, bondage, knees on the necks of people has always existed throughout biblical history. And it has always been fought. God always sent deliverers to his people who cried out to him. That's what the book of Judges is all about. Every single time that God's children would go into bondage and they would be in slavery and they would cry out to God, they would acknowledge him, they would recognize him. And then God would send them a deliverer. Every time they cried out, every time that he saw his people in bondage and they would speak to him and they would cry out to him. He would send someone to deliver them because God is not for that. The children of Israel were in bondage in in Egypt for 400 years. And then they cried out to God and God sent Moses to them, the great deliverer. So this has been happening all throughout history. So my question to you then is, when did it end? When did this end? When did this cease to exist? When did this stop happening? All of a sudden, for for some people, you believe that there is something special about American soil or American ground to the point that racism, uh, prejudices and injustices have ceased to exist in this land. And my question again to you is, when did it cease to exist? And my question to you is, did it ever exist? Did racism ever exist in this country? If so, when did it end? And if you believe that it ended at the end of um, the abolishment of slavery, or the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement in 1968, if you believe that's when it ended, then (laughs) something's seriously wrong there as well. Laws don't change hearts. Christ is the one who changes the hearts of people and the hearts of men and laws don't change hearts. So my question to you sincerely is when did it end? Because I know that there are people who don't believe this thing exists. So when did it end? And I want to tell you boldly and straight up today that it still exists, church. It still exists. And if you refuse to recognize it, then you are a part of the problem that still exists in our country and it still exists in the world. Jamal Tisbe said this, there can be no reconciliation without repentance. Then there can be no repentance without confession. And there can be no confession without truth. And here are the words of the Lord spoken through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse three. It says this, thus says the Lord, execute judgment and righteousness and deliver the plundered out of the land, out of the hand of the oppressor. Thus says the Lord, execute judgment and righteousness and deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. Do no wrong and do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless or the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place, And Jeremiah 22 and verse 3 in the NIV says this, this is what the Lord says, do what is just and right. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. The, the fatherless today in 2020 most definitely, most assuredly incorporates and, and includes the African-American community. The fatherless. And there are, are many reasons and there are many uh, um, excuses that we can give for why these homes are fatherless, but God cares for the fatherless. We understand that he cares for the foreigner. We understand that he cares for the widow. We understand that he cares for the unborn. Many people are allowed about those issues, but he also cares about the fatherless. And in 2020, I can can assure you that the the African-American community fits into that category of the fatherless. And the Bible doesn't ask us, you know, why they are fatherless, but the Bible just just says plead for those who are fatherless. Forget the reasons why. But speak up for the fatherless. And by the grace of God I will do what is just and I will do what is right. By the grace of God I will always do what is just and I will always and I will always do what is right and I will always be a voice for justice. And if me being a voice for justice makes me sound like the Republicans, I don't care. And if me being a voice for justice makes me sound like the Democrats, I don't care. I will be a voice for justice because God's word commands it. God's word commands it. And I will not disobey God because your political party refuses to speak up for issues of injustice. And I will not disobey God's word because the commander in chief does not speak loudly regarding the current issues of injustice in our country. I will obey God. And I don't care what box you choose to put me in because of it. You see, you can't figure me out politically. Politically. You cannot figure me out politically because I have no sworn allegiance to a political party. I have no sworn allegiance to a denomination. I have no sworn allegiance to a people group, black, brown, Asian, or white. And I definitely have no sworn allegiance to a country or to a flag. But my sworn allegiance is to the God of the Bible and it's to the Holy Scriptures. That's where my sworn allegiance lies. It is to God and it is to his word. And I can say to you, honestly speaking, that if the Holocaust existed today, if that existed today within our generation, I would speak out just as passionately against that injustice, as I will, about the injustice of black men and women in this country. I will speak out with the same passion and without bias. We have to call sin, sin, and we have to call injustice, injustice. And listen, I'm not saying that injustice only happens to minorities, but that is what we are specifically speaking about in this season. That is what we are specifically addressing in this season, so we will address the issue. Jews were not the only ones to die in the Holocaust. They were not the only ones to die during that time, but but what is your point? So we won't recognize the the Jews because of the injustice that was also done to some others during that time. No, we understand that the Jews were targeted and we understand that they were the majority. They were the majority who, who suffered during that time. So we will recognize what happened to them. So my allegiance is to God's word and I will by the grace of God forever call right, right and wrong, wrong. And you will not silence me with the lies to make me believe that if I speak up on this issue, then I am somehow a part of the problem. And I'm somehow creating division and I'm somehow being used by the agenda of the liberals. I will not believe that lie. You will not silence me by telling me that, that we are all one people and one race, and that race is not an issue. Yes, I believe that to be true. I believe, and I know that we are all one people and that we came from Adam and Eve. I believe that to be true, and that is true. But race is an issue. And, and God made us with different colors, and we are supposed to see that. Color is beautiful. That's what makes our world beautiful, color and diversity. We are different colors. Whether that's because we have more melanin and some have less melanin, it doesn't matter. We're still different colors or different shades, whatever you choose to call it, but we appear to look Differently, whatever you choose. it, You can say we're all the same color, we're all the same race, but it's just different levels of melanin. Some have more, some have less. Yes, sure. But at the end of the day, we still appear to be different colors. And that's the way that God designed it. Color is not sin. God designed for us to be different colors. So our colors and our diversity, there is beauty in that. We are different and it is good. 1 Corinthians 12 reveals the beauty in diversity and we are supposed to be different without the segregation and without people putting us and putting people in classes because of their differences. We are supposed to be different yet one because we recognize that we are joined to the same body. And again, when I speak of, of unity, I speak in terms and in regards of the church, I believe that Christ is the one who unifies. He's the one who ultimately unifies. He is the head and we are part of his body. And unity takes place when we are attached to the body of Christ, that's where the unity begins. And today, this morning, I'm speaking to the church primarily because I've seen many divisions within the church. So only Christ truly unifies. Listen, he does not unite us because we are the same. That is not the goal. It is not the goal for us to be the same. He does not unite us because we are the same, but He unites us because we are different. And we are not trying to be the same, we are trying to be equal. Some of you have decided that indifference to what injustice is a price worth paying in order for you to maintain whatever reputation you think you have. Because you do not want anyone to put a theological or political label on you if you speak up or express too much passion regarding certain issues. So you've chosen, I'm just going to remain indifferent, and you've chosen to remain silent regarding unethical issues. Christians must care about injustice. Christians must care about all injustices because justice is rooted in God, So if you don't care about all injustices, then you are in need of a lot of sanctification. To not care about justice is to strive with God. To not care about justice is to wrestle with him. And to be silent when God speaks is to be in sin. Psalm 99 and verse 4 says this, the king is is mighty. The king is mighty, he loves justice. You have established equity. In Jacob you have done what is just and right. The king is mighty, he loves justice. You have established equity. In Jacob you have done what is just and right. And Psalm 146 verses 7 through 9 says this, he upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But He frustrates the ways of the wicked. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous, those who practice righteousness. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the ways of the wicked. And Proverbs 31 verses 8 and 9 says open your mouth for the speechless, open your mouth for the speechless in the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth for the speechless in the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth judge righteously. This is my plea to you today. Judge righteously and plead the cause of the poor and needy? Do you plead the cause of the poor and needy? Do you do that? And this is my charge for you today. Our vision as a church, the the vision of the Way City Church is to reach the lost and is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And you know that we reach the lost And the saints, by being relevant to our generation. To be relevant to our generation is to speak up on issues of injustice. And the world should not be speaking up on these issues more than we are. The world should not be louder than us. And maybe you're thinking, well, but we're different than the world. Yeah, but you know what? Sometimes the world lines up with the will of God. And, and sometimes you, sometimes you see that. And when the world lines up with, with, with God's will, and the church remains silent, that is tragic. That is tragic. Because we were all made in God's likeness and God's image. And there is something even within the world that makes them cry out for justice. But for many Christians, they want to use the Bible as an excuse to not cry out for justice. And to not call racism racism. That's a problem. So the vision at the way see Church is to reach the lost and to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We reach the lost and the saints by, by being relevant to our generation. We are completely open to become what all things to all people so that we may win them all. We want to become all things to all people only without the compromise of the word of God. What does it look like to become all things to all people? When they weep, we weep. When they cry, we cry. To become all things to all people. This is our vision. This is our mission. We desire to be a multi-racial, multi-ethnic, multi-generational, economically diverse church that loves God passionately and has a zeal for the spiritual development this is our vision as a church. And if you can connect with that vision, if you want to reach people, then you have to be able to meet them where they're at without compromising God's word and his scriptures. But you have to be concerned about some of the things that they're concerned about, as long as they're concerned and the things that they're fighting for are not unscriptural. And in this case, it's not. We're fighting for the same thing justice and equality. Today, I wanna pause and, and I wanna. Um, you're gonna hear a, a message from uh, Tim Keller. Uh, it's called Racism and Corporate Evil A White Guy's Perspective. That's what it's called. It's called Racism and Corporate Evil A White Guy's Perspective. So, you're gonna tune in right now, it's about 25 minutes, um, and I want you guys to hear hear that word today. So may you be blessed by the
1: message. Our next speaker is Reverend Tim Keller, who will be speaking on racism and corporate evil, a white guy's perspective. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a, obviously it's a somewhat, uh, comical uh, title, but what I want to do is I want to, I want to build on what John has just said, which John gives the, the theological bedrock for why racism is completely antithetical to Christian theology and a Christian understanding of the gospel. But um, I want to talk to you about the concept of corporate evil or systemic evil and injustice. Uh, how, and I'll explain this in a second, but I I, I start off by saying Western people in general and white Americans in particular have little or no concept of corporate evil or they are actively set against the idea. I think it's very important for me as a white man to say, look, uh, that's wrong, especially to say to other white Americans, many many of you are, Uh, That's wrong. And if we don't get what the Bible says about corporate evil, uh, we will not only understand the Bible itself, but we won't understand what so many of our non-white brothers and sisters and friends and neighbors are saying. We just won't get it. We'll think they're all paranoid. Okay. So, I'd like to talk to you first about the idea of corporate responsibility, corporate moral responsibility, corporate guilt, secondly, systemic evil, and then thirdly, how the gospel addresses those things. Um, first of all, corporate responsibility. Let me just show you how big parts of the Bible. I'll give you three: Joshua 7, Daniel 9, and Romans 8. Uh, Romans 5, excuse me. Make no sense if you think of moral responsibility in strictly individualistic terms. If you're reading through the Bible and you get to Joshua 7, especially if you're a white American, especially if you're a Western person, you go, "What?" In Joshua 7, I won't go into all the details of the background. A man named Achan. Uh, an Israelite, they're coming into the Promised Land, they are strictly told, you are not here for plunder. Uh, uh, Achan takes some plunder, a robe, some, um, uh, some wealth, takes it for himself, hides it under his tent. Uh, he, he breaks the law, he goes against God's will, goes against the law for the Israelites. And when it's discovered, he's not just punished, but his entire family is stoned to death with him. And uh, Western people, especially white Americans, go, wait a minute. He did it. They didn't do it. Now, let me just um, get right off and say this. Most people in most other cultures, most other centuries, understand why that happened. Uh, If you're a New Yorker and you have some objection to some part of the Bible that you find offensive, I want you to realize it's your cultural location that's causing the offense. Don't you dare think that just because you find that part of the Bible offensive, everybody in the whole world would think the Bible's offensive. That's culturally narrow of you to think that. Because most people, most places know that we are not just the product of our choices, individual choices. That if you can do something bad, the fact that you can do it, what helped you become the kind of person that can do it was to a great degree your family. Your family produced you directly or at least failed to keep you from becoming that and therefore at least actively or passively, your family participates in your guilt. Most people, most places, Americans, especially white Americans don't understand that, most people most places recognize that because you're not the product of your own individual choices. You are the product of a community and you produce, listen, not only are you the product of a community to a great degree but that you, by even participating in that community, are producing other kinds of people with their particular kinds of character too because of your interaction with them. So Joshua 7 says that there is corporate responsibility inside a family. Okay, let's take it up a little higher. In Daniel chapter 9, now we're talking about corporate guilt and responsibility inside a whole race or a culture. Because Daniel, in Daniel 9, confesses sins, repents for sins, says it's his responsibility to repent for sins that his ancestors did that he didn't do at all. They didn't do at all. Uh, especially, I mean, I still hear it though, especially years ago, I'm an older man when I was, lived in the South in the 1970s, over and over, I heard, I'll get back to this, I heard white people say, yeah, it's a shame what slavery did, but I never owned any slaves, so why in the world does anybody think that I as a white person now have any responsibility to that community over there at all? I didn't own slaves. But here is Daniel feeling a responsibility for and repenting for things his ancestors did. Why? Because he knows that the culture that he's part of produced the sins of the past, and he's still part of that culture. He senses the responsibility. The Bible senses the responsibility. He senses the connection. Now, let me actually let me, let me throw this over onto the positive. Not only will Daniel feel that... Uh, that the sins of other members of the community, I participate in, so I should experience some of the shame and responsibility for that. But, but the good things that happen by members of the community, I, get, I feel I can take some credit for. Now, let's, let's be honest now, guys, men and women. If you're white, didn't you have a little trouble understanding Lynn's sanity? <laughs> Just a little? Come on. Come on, you can look me in the eye and say, Okay, and the, the reason was because you were saying, if a white person makes the Nixon does well, I don't get all think, wow, I'm, it's so proud to ma- I'm proud to be white, you know, but that's because you are the majority here, and if you were in China, and you were a white American in China, and you knew to some degree that there was, uh, you know, people often looked at you white Americans in this and that way, and some white American in China really makes good, and everybody's cheering this person you would feel that that's reflecting good on you, wouldn't you, because as a minority, you would sense the corporate connection, but you don't sense it here, because you're a majority. So if you take the Western individualism anyway, and you put on top of that the fact that if you're white in America, you've always been majority, you just don't get all this talk about corporate uh, connection, that uh, some members of the community can bring guilt on the whole community, and some members of the community can bring credit on the whole community, and we don't get it, but that's only because of our cultural myopia. Let me go one step further, though. And uh, John has already alluded to this, and I'll get back to this in a minute. Go to Romans 5, and you get into the very heart of what's called classic federal theology. At the heart of classic Protestantism has always been this teaching. In in Romans 5, Paul goes way beyond the idea that you you are responsible for what other members of your family did, And he goes way beyond, you are responsible for what other members of your culture do. He says, you are responsible and you are condemned for what your ancestors Adam and Eve did. That is, just by virtue of being in the entire human race, you're responsible for things that you didn't individually do. You are condemned for what they do. And then, of course, he turns around and says, but by connection to Jesus Christ, you can be saved, not because of what you have done, but through your connection to him by faith. The whole structure of the gospel is based on corporate responsibility. If you really want to go all the way down and say, I'm only responsible for what I have done and only I have done, there is no gospel. Do you see that? At the very heart of Protestant understanding, and I'm not saying it's not the heart of Catholicism, I'm not a Catholic and I can't go there actually, but I do know at the heart of Protestantism, the heart of... Uh, and it, but By the way, Catholics do and or, Greek Orthodox do come to this in a somewhat different way that in the end, our salvation ends up being corporate. It's not something we earn. It's something that comes to us by being joined with Christ, but our sin is there, not just because, well, of course we do sin ourselves, but we're also s- sinful and condemned because of our, our being part of the human race. So at the very, very heart of the Bible, at the heart of theology, not just, not just what the Bible says about you and your family, not just what the Bible says about you and your, your culture, but what the Bible says about you and the human race, how sin happens, how how uh, salvation happens—it's all there's corporate responsibility. You got that? And if you don't understand that, I, I, to some degree, Western people and white people in particular don't realize to what degree they filter out all kinds of things the Bible says. They just don't see them, or they resist them because of that individualism. It's not biblical. It's not gospel. Let me go next step. Let's talk then about systemic evil. Here's what I mean by systemic. If you're part of a community, there are systems that the, the whole community, there's things that get done by the system. And you, by participating in the community, are to some degree getting that done. Even if all you do, there's levels, there's levels of responsibility. for it. I'll, get, I'll give you these levels. <clears throat> you might be in the community and know exactly what the system's doing and be happy for it and actually actively doing it. Or secondly, you might kind of know what's happening in the system um, and yet not—you know—don't you don't think too much about it, but you're kind of in favor of it. Or number three, you, you know what's happening, but you don't do anything to stop it. Or number four, you don't really know what's happening and you don't care, and you don't even care to try to uh, uh, you know, find out about it. In every So for example, Holocaust, okay, let's go to the Holocaust. At the top of the system, I mean, the Holocaust killed Jews, plus others, but because of the Jews right now. And it was a system. At the top of the system, at the most, you might say, uh, uh, responsible, you had people that set up the death camps. Underneath that, you have guards and people who are in the death camps who were just following orders, as they said. Underneath that, you had people in the town, civic leaders, who kind of knew what was happening there, but they didn't want to know. Though very often, after the war, some of them committed suicide when they actually saw what was happening in the camp, because they kind of knew, but they had no idea exactly, and so forth. And then you go down to the citizen, the German citizen, who had heard rumors, but didn't want to know, and didn't do anything about it, and just paid their taxes and worked. Don't you see that at the one end, you've got people who are more responsibly you know, more corporately responsible, at the bottom a little less corporately responsible, but only all those people died because the whole system was working and everybody who was in the system, everybody who wasn't resisting the system, was part of it because the system couldn't have killed all those people unless, unless everybody was doing their job, even just looking the other way. Got that. Let me go down a step. When I moved to a little town in Virginia uh, in the 1970s, one of the things I discovered, but I didn't really think much about, was uh, there were six city councilmen, women, city, city council members, and they were elected at large. Twenty-five to thirty percent of the population of the town was black. But because they weren't elected by region or neighborhood, they were elected at large by the whole community, they were all six white. The um, The rationale was, oh, we don't want that awful word, politics, where everybody's fighting. And because the whole community is electing everybody, every single council member is representing the whole group. But the fact of the matter was, of course, that the poor part of the city, the poor part of the town, the school over there, the black part of town, was just being absolutely starved of resources. Now, at the top of this system were councilmen and people like that who really knew exactly what they were doing. But very important to the system was uh, a young, northern white pastor in his 20s and 30s who kind of knew about it and never really asked and just continued to support it just by not not putting up any kind of fuss and just participating in the elections, et cetera. It wasn't until years later that I looked back on the thing. By the way, that went away in 1983, but uh, looking back, the year after I left, looking back on the thing, I <laughs> I realized Wait a minute, what was I doing? I was part of a system. Did I experience some corporate responsibility? Absolutely. In the narrow, I was was responsible for something that was keeping the people down, the poor black people in that town down, partly because I didn't care enough to really think about it. In the broad, by being a white man in the South in the 1970s, and I actually had an elder in my church whose father had fought in the Civil War. You can figure that out. It actually happened. He was in his 70s, his, his father had fathered when he was 65, he had lied about his age and got into the Civil War at the age of 14, but by gosh, I had a, <laughs> I had a civil War. I mean, a, a guy whose father was a Civil War veteran in 1975 on my stesh- session. So the Civil War wasn't that far uh, uh, back, and for any white person in that town, when so, it was so obvious that so many of the, the poor black people in that town we're in that situation over the generations because of slavery, for me to say, I don't have anything to do with that, I don't have any responsibility to do something about their plight is just unbiblical. Um, there are also, let me just give you, you need to look. What I mean by systemic evil, here's a definition. It is a system that excludes and marginalizes people on the basis of race, even though most of the individuals in the system are not probably intentionally trying to do it. The individuals aren't intentionally trying to do it, but they're part of a system that's doing it. And therefore there's guilt, and therefore there's systemic evil. So for example, let me give you, uh, let me give you a mini system. I knew a man who was the, uh, the head of a uh, uh, car dealerships, a set of car dealerships in the south. And the car dealerships, the, the way in which things were done was you could come in and negotiate, and the salesman had a pretty big window of what they could give you the car for. So they would negotiate, and you would negotiate, and it was a way of—it was a lot of horse trading going on, except it was car trading, I guess. And uh, uh, the, the sales uh, mean—couldn't could, go lower than this, but they could get this high. And so it was—it was, was partly—it was a tradition. Somebody did some research and found out that a men always were better negotiators with the salesmen than women, and white men were white men and white black men were better negotiators than African American women. And so when somebody actually looked at what was going on, African American women were regularly paying far more for their cars and were actually subsidizing the, uh, 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 you know, the price of uh, what white men were paying for cars in that particular town. And so they realized that even though nobody thought they were doing something, if the result was unjust, and it was unjust, Then even though there was nobody in there who originally had said, let's do it this way, because that way we will really hurt African-American women. But they were hurting African-American women. There's two things you can do. On the one hand, you could say, because we're not deliberately trying to hurt African-American women, and we make better profits this way, we have no responsibility. But the owner, a Christian man, said, we do. And he changed the model. He changed the whole approach. His own profits have gone down, but he says it's the only way to be just. Have you got the eyes to see systemic evil? Or are you a typical white Westerner? I know a lot of you aren't white, and a lot of you aren't Westerners, but I'm particularly looking to you. Uh, do you have the eyes to see that kind of thing? Do you, and if you do see them, are, do you take responsibility? Now lastly, how does the Gospel actually um, address this? On the one hand, you've gotta keep in mind that just converting some individual with the Gospel if, if the system needs to be dealt with, won't be enough to deal with racism. I mean, you know, the tr- to me the most dramatic example of that was um, Robert Linthicum some years ago wrote a book called City of God, City of Satan. He tells a true story about how when he was a young man, uh, a kind of a minister student, he spent a, a summer doing evangelism and ministry in a big city. He met a girl named Eva who was from the project. She was from a very poor background, a black girl, African-American. He, uh, She became a Christian under his ministry. He put her in a Bible study. She was growing. Went back to school, seminary, college, something like that. A year later, came back to see his friends and found out that Eva had gone into prostitution. She, he found her. He started berating her. He started saying, why didn't you keep going to your Bible study? And then she said, men came, told me I looked good, said they wanted me to be a prostitute, and if I wasn't, they would beat up my father and my brother. And uh, the, this is Robert Linthicum, the author, saying, so I said to her, Eva, that's just terrible. You should have trusted God and gone to the police. And she said, it was the police who came and said they were gonna beat up my father and my brother. You know, What was I gonna do? And Linthicum said, I suddenly realized, I don't think it's gonna be enough to help her just by converting her and getting her into a Bible study. I've got to do something about the system. There's a corrupt system going on here, and of course black and Hispanic women were being uh, used in this way. Now that's a a, a particularly dramatic, very vivid, I try to show you the car dealership to show you the systemic, Racism can happen at all kinds of levels almost at an unconscious level, but there it is at the other end That's very very, uh, you know obvious, but it just goes to show you got to do something about systems You can't just simply say we're just going to convert everybody and convict them of the individual sin of racism Everything will be okay. Here's three things that the um, Three ways the gospel I think can address this number one. You already heard me say something about this if you begin to understand gospel theology the idea that a lot of people say that the very doctrine that Adam and Eve's sin is imputed to me, so I'm guilty, and now when I believe in Jesus Christ, not only are my sins put on Christ, but his righteousness is put on me, and I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I've, had people, I've seen people criticize in reviews of John's book saying reformed theology, Protestant theology, classic imputed, imputed uh, righteousness theology is individualistic, and it's no help. And I'm trying to say, are you kidding? Are you, have you read this? To me, the reason that I have been able to get beyond my individualism and start to think in terms of corporate responsibility is because of the gospel. It gives anybody who really deep, you know, digs down into it the ability to see that God sees things happening through communities, through bodies, not just simply through individual uh, actions. And so on the one hand, I'd say the gospel theology gives people, even those of us from the most individualistic background, the the spectacles through which we can finally start to see things we never saw before. We can look at things in other other ways other than just simply individual uh, rights, individual actions, number one. Number two, the gospel changes your identity so that you are less sucked in to the social system around us, which tends to be racist. Michelle Alexander, in her book *The New Jim Crow*, points out that gangster rap culture—this is her view—and you know she's a sociologist and all that. She's not a psychologist, but I think she's right here. Gangster rap culture is a way for stigmatized people, desperately trying to do something about their low self-image, and they are embracing the identity given to them by the society as criminals. So they embrace uh, beating up women and violence and are proud of it. And it's a desperate way for people to say, okay, you're going to treat me as a criminal, I'm going to revel in being a criminal, but of course all it does is it digs them in deeper. They've got to have an identity that even if they do go to prison, keeps them from being sucked into what the culture is telling them about themselves. On the other hand, um, Bill Stuntz uh, recently uh, died, has died, unfortunately, and he was a great scholar of criminal uh, law at Harvard University, he wrote, wrote a book that came out after he died called the, um, uh, the Collapse of American Criminal Justice. It's an amazing book, and he points out that in the 1840s, he says police, the pol- police forces were invented, you know why, because of the Irish. <laughs> the Irish showed up in the 1840s, they came here because of the potato famine. They came into the big cities, and there was all this violence, and everybody said, oh my gosh, the Irish. They were the very first, um, you know, they were the first urban uh, criminal uh, culture. And actually, um, police forces were invented to deal with them. But he pointed something out over a period of 20 years. He said, Irish criminals were tried by Irish juries. They were, they were tried by Irish judges. They were arrested by Irish policemen and Irish district attorneys, in other words, it says the Irish community was empowered to actually deal with their own crime problem and they got on top of it. But these inner city black communities are not empowered to do that because the criminal justice system, he says, is in the hands of white people, and particularly white suburbanites. People who don't even live there. And he makes a long list of the ways in which the criminal justice system is absolutely broken. And it's one of the reasons why, it's one of the reasons why uh, you know, black male incarceration rates are far higher than they were just a generation ago, far higher. He says it's absolutely broken until white people begin to realize that they are us. He actually says, Michelle Alexander does the same thing at the end of her book saying that the you know, criminal justice system right now is a disaster for black people in general and black males in particular. And she says there isn't any way out of it unless white people get some kind of new understanding some new, some new understanding that we are together, some new humility, some new sense of care and love. There's a place in James 1 verse 9 that says, the poor believer, this is a paraphrase, but the poor believer should take pride in his high position and the rich believer should take pride in his low position because he's going to pass away like a flower of the field. And probably what that is saying is this, if you are a Christian affluent person, you should remember that you are a sinner. That's one of the things the Bible says. If you are a poor person and you become a Christian, you should remember that you are a child of the king. You should think of your high position. The gospel takes white people and keeps them from really getting their identity from their place in the society. And it takes poor people and it keeps them from t- taking their identity out of their place that's been assigned to them in society. And that helps destroy the power of the system. Lastly, An awful lot of people that talk about systemic racism and evil and talk about systemic injustice are incredibly self-righteous as they do it. Christians ought to get alongside of people who say that criminal justice system, um, there's systemic evil that are keeping people of color and non-white people down, that the, the school system, there's a whole lot of systems out there that are a huge problem, even when you have individual rights and that kind of thing. But the fact is as so many of the crusaders against systemic racism and justice have an enormous amount of self-righteousness and anger that makes people write them off. If we're Christians, we know that we're sinners saved by grace, the gospel should humble us so that when we talk about injustice, we don't look at everybody else as the problem. We're the ones who understand these things. All you idiots that don't believe in systemic evil. I heard Tim Keller preach on it, I know. And you're just a stupid (laughs) individualistic white person that doesn't understand these things. You just don't understand, but I do. See, the gospel takes that out of you forever and makes you a person who will probably be more likely to persuade people. So in all those ways, the gospel, I think, um, takes a look at corporate evil, helps us understand it and changes our hearts and and changes our ways of thinking so that we can do something about it. Thanks.
0: That was a great word. Um, I wanted Tim Keller to speak because he has an understanding of growing up in white America, which produces a different perspective than I have. That's a perspective that I don't have. Uh, and I believe that it was a, a sound, um, it was truthful, and it was a helpful word for us this morning. Let's end with 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews, To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people. So that by all so that by all possible means I might save some. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Father, I pray that you would teach us 1 Corinthians chapter. 9, Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would not disqualify ourselves from sharing the gospel because we refuse to become all things to all people. There are some people that's more interested in winning arguments than winning souls. But, Father, I thank you for your word I thank you that it is truth. I thank you that it is life. And I thank you, Lord God Almighty, that you have called us to do whatever it takes to win people, to identify with people, people that may not even be like us. Like the apostle Paul said, to the Jews, I became like a Jew, to those under law, as under law, even though I was not under law, I became all things to all people so that I may win the more. And Father, there, there are many believers who are not interested in becoming all things to all people. They're interested in winning debates and arguments. and unnecessary vain disputes but father i pray that you would teach us as the church the church as a whole but especially the way see church that we would be one lord that our very vision the vision that we have to reach all people lord that we would do whatever it takes to reach them father i pray that you would strengthen us as a church i pray that we would be one Father, I thank you so much for all of my brothers and sisters in Christ. For those who are black, for those who are white, for those who are brown, for those who are who are Asian. Father, for, for, for all of our brothers and sisters in Christ, every nation and every tribe and every tongue and, and every group of people, I thank you for their lives. And I thank you, Lord God Almighty. I pray, Lord, that you would cause the the body of Christ to boldly proclaim that which is true. And I pray, Lord God Almighty, for anyone listening today that does not know you. Father, maybe there are some listening, Lord, who, Lord, that they have their, their own racist tendencies, prejudices. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would cleanse them, I pray that you would wash them, I pray that you would forgive them, I pray that they would ask you to forgive them, I pray that you would set them free Lord from the the bondage of their flesh, from from the bondage Father of of whatever they were taught as they grew up the things that they were taught which were not true, I pray that you would deliver and set people free today. And I pray ultimately, Lord God Almighty, that their souls would be saved, that they would recognize that they are sinners. And Lord, we know that this is a sin issue at its root. But Father, just because it's a sin issue, we're also gonna call out the specific sin of racism. The fact that we know that everything is is rooted in, in sin, That doesn't stop us from addressing and calling out specific issues. But Father, I do pray for those who are lost and without you today. And I pray that they would call upon you. And I pray, Lord God Almighty, that you would save them, that they would recognize their sin, regardless of what it is. But I pray, Lord, that they would reach out to you, that they would call upon you, and that you would ultimately save them today. Father, we thank you for continual, justice we thank you for laws being changed in the land father I thank you for those who are speaking up for those who are not only praying I thank you for those who are praying but I also thank you for those who are protesting I thank you for both father and I thank you for those who are evangelizing and sharing the gospel during this time it is needed and it is necessary so I thank you for the entire body of Christ that's working together doing their part so Lord we bless you We thank you, Lord, for moving in this nation, for moving in this entire world. Lord, we know that because of this man's death, we know that uh, 50, all 50 states have been in protest. And Father, last time I heard it was more than 18 countries, including my home country of the United Kingdom of England. So we, we know that something is taking place, something is shifting in the atmosphere. So we thank you, Lord, and we pray That your will be done on the earth. That your kingdom come to earth as it is in heaven. We love you and we bless you. And we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'd love to hear from you. Visit us at thewaycitychurch.org.